Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can tweet me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. The National Coalition to Save Our Mall is a nonprofit 501c3 organization of designers, historians, artists, preservationists, and concerned citizens founded in 2000 to protect and enhance the integrity of the National Mall. The coalition is the only organized voice for the public on mall matters. Their mission is to seek a broad, forward-looking visionary plan for the National Mall that recognizes its value to all Americans as a symbol of our country's founding ideals, the people's place, and a stage for our evolving democracy. The coalition advances its goals through public advocacy, holding public forums, and presentations to educate audiences and identify the mall's needs, and publish reports advocating long-range solutions. Their most recent proposal for improving the mall's value to the nation and the city include mall expansion, an idea that has found support in Congress, the media, and the public, to accommodate new museums and public uses so the mall can continue to evolve as a great national gathering place and vital urban park. The last time our nation prepared a comprehensive vision for the entire mall was 1902. The coalition has called for a creation of an independent commission of prominent Americans to prepare a vision and framework plan for the mall as a whole, updating the 1902 Macmillan plan. They are urging Congress and the president to establish an independent 18-month National Mall Commission to bring all constituencies to the table, including the public and the District of Columbia government, to create a long-term visionary plan for the National Mall in its third century. 
the original visionary plan, the LaFont Plan of 1791 for Washington, D.C., the First Century Mall, and the second visionary plan, the Macmillan Commission Plan of 1902, the Second Century Mall, cannot accommodate modern needs for new museums and public use. The National Mall is one of the country's most symbolic landscapes, a major destination for visitors from the U.S. and around the world, and a major urban park for D.C. residents. Oversight of the mall is divided among six government agencies and 14 congressional committees. Chair and President Dr. Judy Scott Feldman, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Thank you very much for inviting me, and also thank you very much for an superb uh, introduction that really does outline many of our ideas and our goals. Thank you, Dr. Feldman. You know, uh, I'm very excited. I sort of feel like I'm a part of history, you know, in the making with this initiative. And having you on is just just an exciting thing to be able to understand a little bit about our history, where we're going. And, you know, this is something that's probably – one of our biggest issues today with our national parks, but something that was not on my radar and it's something, you know, I guess most people just don't know anything about. So tell us about this whole initiative and what started it all. Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I should start by saying uh, I, I, was, uh, I studied art history and uh, got my doctorate in the history of art, Uh, many years ago. Um, But as an art historian who also grew up in Washington, D.C., I actually grew up on the hills of Anacostia, where views from my house were of the whole city, I came to truly love the beauty, the layout of the city, the architecture of the city, and so on. And I grew to understand not only the beauty of, of the architecture and the space, but also the important role that the mall plays in American democracy with the Capitol building um, at the east end uh, overlooking this grand expanse that goes all the way down from the Capitol to the Washington Monument and then on to the Lincoln Memorial with the museums and monuments flanking it on all sides. So we have this fantastic Um, public space in the heart of our nation's capital, which to me as an art historian and a teacher for over 30 years, I likened to great historic monuments of the past that were embodiments of ideals. For instance, the Acropolis in Athens with the great Parthenon, or the public forums uh, in Rome where politics and and the public um, came together to create laws and and to have ceremonies and so on. And so for me... When I moved back to Washington uh, in the early 90s, I realized that the National Mall was really being run by some government agencies, a collection of government agencies, but there was no kind of unifying intelligence or or entity that actually looked at it as a symbol and said, okay, the mall grew from 1791 to 1902, and then we got a new plan the Macmillan Plan of 1902, um, but it's been growing for over 100 more years, but we have no plan. And so what happens is that it stagnates. And instead of it growing as a symbol to accommodate all the new public uses, like the grand gatherings, uh, instead the Congress and the National Park Service and the National Capital Planning Commission have declared it a completed work of civic art. And so we came to realize that essentially the mall will be preserved in amber, so to speak, if we follow that tack. And instead, the Coalition to Save Our Mall uh, is made up of thinkers and planners and historians and just concerned citizens who understand the mall as an organic, living symbol of America. And we need to plan for it that way. And so that's what we do. We get together and, and we, we come up with ways to think about this symbol that give it life for future generations. Wow. And, and that is, is really amazing and it's really needed as well that someone would think to focus on this. I mean, the mall has meant a lot to me as well. I have grew up in this area. And one of my first real jobs was 
at the um, Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and just to be there every day in that area, it was such a blessing for me um, to be able to go to the different museums and to be able to uh, learn from tour guides as I, you know, sort of shadowed them <laughs> around the mall with the various groups. You know, it's just it's just the most amazing and it's the most beautiful city that I've ever been to. I've traveled the world, but our mall is just amazing. It is just the most beautiful landscape that you could just look at in a city. Well, I love to hear you describe it that way because that's precisely how I feel. Um, when you know, I, all the times you go down there, uh, you you just look up and you just you know, it's just awe inspiring. The the combination of landscape grass, trees, and architecture, and monuments that are symbolic, um, and, and it just takes your breath away. And, and people, everyone says that. And my, actually, my first job was in the Capitol building, in the basement, mm. in the service department. And I remember I'd go out for lunch, and I'd just sit out in the grass and just look at the beauty of that great dome and out over the expanse. So I share your, I share your, um, your sense of, of wonder of the beauty. And I've traveled not all around the world, but I remember the first time I came back from a student um, um, study abroad in Europe, and I arrived back in Washington on a Sunday evening in the summertime, you know, just when the sun's starting to go down and it, it, the, the whole city's mm. like glowing yellowish orange. Yeah. And I said to my parents who picked me up at the airport, at, at the National Airport, I said, you know, I've, I've just traveled around and this is the most beautiful city and I think, you know, there I was, 19 years old, they were, they were astonished <laughs> that, that I would come back and say that our own city was truly beautiful. And I think it's a combination, the, the architecture and the spaces and the open space and the lack of uh, skyscrapers to block light and air. But mm-hmm. also it's the symbolism of the buildings. We associate them with democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's that notion of the public, a government of the public that you know charge hmm. and you know it, it's you when i was walking and i first met you <laughs> walking on k street one of my favorite places um and uh was probably just going to get lunch and i saw something that said save our mall i'm like what's going on what what could this possibly be and i just popped in for a minute and had a very pleasant conversation with you uh, about some of the the grand ideas, and and I was very curious, how could this be done? And just talk about some of the ideas that the uh, coalition has for them all. Well, what the the whole the whole story of the mall is a story of visionary planning. The 1791 mm-hmm. plan by uh, Peter Charles L'Enfant. He called himself Peter, by the way, not Pierre. Um, <laughs> the original plan, uh, you know, he was he was he was asked by President George Washington to design a city on what was at the time just open land and farms, and he came up with a plan for a ten ten mile square city with all the places for public buildings, for the avenues, for the places for private houses and so on. I mean, it was a visionary plan that is, in fact, the basis of Washington today. That is the L'Enfant Plan. And in 1902, when the mall was uh, not quite in the shape it should have been, it was kind of filled with trees and industrial buildings even, uh, the Macmillan Commission plan um, was charged by Senator Macmillan uh, to you know, clean up and restore L'Enfant's concept. And they did, and again, they thought big. They were actually doing a plan for the whole park system for Washington, D.C., and they did do a plan. Most people only know about their plan for the mall, but they included the Anacostia and Rock Creek and up by the old soldier's home. They wanted the whole park system of Washington, D.C. to be unified so that you could walk or ride a bicycle all throughout so these were visionary plans that unfortunately have not totally been um, implemented, but the vision was there. And we take that as our jumping off point. If the government agencies are planning for their own needs, the Park Service plans for the grass and the trees, um, the Smithsonian plans for the museums and collections, the architect of the Capitol plans for the federal workforce up there. We said, no, we have to look at the totality of all the buildings and space together. And so the first thing, and, and, and you, you, know, you start by asking, what are the problems we need to solve? 
Well, the problem we need to solve now is every time someone proposes a new memorial or museum, uh, there's an outcry. We don't have any more space, and in fact, any new building is going to take up more of the open space. So on the one hand, we want to stop overbuilding on the open space to keep it open. But on the other hand, um, and I feel very strongly um, about this as a historian, as an educator, we don't want to stop history from happening. We don't want future generations not to be able to put their memorial next to George Washington or their museum somewhere on the mall. So we did, we proposed what happened in 1902. The original mall went from the Capitol building to the Washington Monument because at that time the Washington Monument was sitting along the banks of the Potomac River. So the original mall was one mile. Now what happened in the later 19th century is the Potomac River was flooding all the time. So the Army Corps came in and dredged the Potomac and dumped all that soil to the west and the south of the Washington Monument. Now all of a sudden we have another mile's worth of landfill. So when the 1902 Macmillan Commission came into being, they thought, well, we need a place for a a memorial to Abraham Lincoln. Let's go ahead and expand the mall. So they expanded the mall beyond the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial to the west and south to the Jefferson Memorial. So they expanded the mall, and what you know, this new mall became now the location where we continue to develop in in the 20th century many of our great memorials. So what we've proposed is, let's take a cue from that. We can expand the mall yet again. And in fact, we have all this free federal land, and in particular, all along the Potomac River. And it's underutilized. So it's East Potomac Park over by the the Tidal Basin, over by the Jefferson Memorial, um, down by Haynes Point. Um, We have all of this underutilized land that could be a place for uh, public gatherings. We could have a f- public forums down there. We could put the solar decathlon down there. We could have docks. We could have restaurants. We could have places where uh, local children can play. I mean, the whole idea is we've got this land. Let's use it and at the same time allow the mall to grow. So that's one idea. The second idea is the existing mall needs, needs some life on it. Right now, the existing mall goes dead at night. It goes dead at night as soon as the museum shut down. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. It's dark. It's scary. It can be quite dangerous. And um, so what we're proposing is something that was originally proposed, actually back in the 1960s, but it was ignored in the 80s. Mr. Albert Small, a local philanthropist, wants more people to come to the mall. So he says, let's put an underground parking garage. Well, you may or may not know that in Washington, D.C., both the federal and the district government are really trying to uh, restrict car uh, traffic. And so they've been opposed to that idea. But if we had underground parking under the mall, families could be coming in from all over the region, drive underneath the mall, park their car, and then go visit the museums for the length of time it takes with your family, with your older uh, relatives, and so on. So we talked with Mr. Small. Mr. Small came to the National Coalition to Save Our Mall. He's known us for many years. And he said, I want parking. How do we make it happen? Well, we agree. It's a great idea. You get the cars off the street. You get people there. But we knew that we had to expand the concept. And this is where our 15 years of history comes to, 14 years of history comes to play. We said, Mr. Small, we have to not only solve our need, the public need, but we have to solve the needs of all the government agencies as well. Can we do that? And so after 14 years of of meeting with these government agencies in multiple venues, we said what the government really wants is a place to put tour buses. So let's expand this notion to make underground car parking and tour bus. Now, what does the public also need? We need bathrooms. We need a place to, uh, to eat. So let's put a visitor center in there also where people can pick up a map, where they can organize their plan for the mall, and so on. So we put in a visitor center. What does the Park Service and the Smithsonian need? They need water for irrigating the grass, the trees, and the pools. So we're putting in irrigation cisterns that will be able to collect rainwater to be used for irrigation. 
And then the most important, we think, in terms of getting the government agencies to see the advantages is this, this parking garage under the mall could do double duty as a floodwater reservoir on those occasions when we have these horrible downpours like we had in 2006 that cause all the surface water to run to the local, low, lowest part of Washington, that is Constitution Avenue where all the federal mm-hmm. office buildings are. And um, so what the federal agencies did after the 2006 flood is they did a study. Fourteen agencies, including the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Smithsonian and the, and, the, and the General Services Administration, the National Park Service, and the office of D.C. Office of Planning, they all came together and said, what are we going to do? This is going to happen over and over again as these storms become more intense. They, they did a gigantic study, and that's actually at our exhibit at 1000 Connecticut Avenue, and the study said there are a couple of options. One of preferred option is to put a gigantic floodwater reservoir underneath the National Mall. But because the cost seemed extravagant for something that would only function maybe once every five or ten years, they put it on the shelf. So I'm working with um, one of my board members, the, the local architect, Arthur Cotton Moore. I said, Arthur, can you make a parking garage that also functions as a floodwater reservoir? And he said, hmm. well, yes, I've already done it at Washington Harbor in Georgetown. He said the parking garage at Washington Harbor is made so that when there are heavy Potomac River floods and they have to put up the security gates to keep the water from inundating Georgetown, he said the parking garage is intentionally flooded so that it won't pop up out of the ground. So now we had all of these ideas that all the government agencies want and couldn't afford to do themselves, and they've wrapped, we've wrapped them into a facility that can do double duty, triple duty, quadruple duty, and serve the needs of the public and of the tour bus industry and of the Office of Planning and of the federal agencies and the National Park Service and the Smithsonian. And we think this is an example of visionary thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you so know, we you explained them all that out. to me. Yeah, we and that was them all amazing. Out and down. Yeah, and that was an amazing thing. And I just want to clarify for the listeners, we're not talking about flooding a garage so that the water's actually in there where the cars are, but flooding underneath in an area that would actually help, as you explained it, hold down the garage as well because of the weight of the water it's taking in, but as well as divert this water and store it in a way that can be used later. Well, no, there, actually there are two things here. And, and in fact, we are talking about flooding the parking garage. But I'll mm. point out that we always know when the flooding is happening. We know right. because in, the, in 2006 there was a convergence of like three weather systems coming together. And we knew there was going to be outrageous flooding for three days. So what you would do is you would remove the cars. Um, at that, because then you would be able to use the re- reservoir. But there, you are right, there are two different water functions. There would be separate irrigation cisterns that would collect rainwater, because that would be relatively clean water that would be used for irrigation. But the entire garage, where the trucks and the, where the buses and the cars are, that would be vacated. We would take the cars and buses out when we know a big storm was coming in anticipation. And then, sure enough, it could be flooded up with, with the stormwater, and then the stormwater could be cleaned out. And I think one thing we do in the exhibit is we show people that this has been done elsewhere. Um, we're not inventing the engineering. It has been engineered both at, at uh, Washington Harbor. There are a few other examples, and one really fascinating one is in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where they actually took a surface street that flooded all the time. They put it into a tunnel. Uh, they put the traffic into the tunnel, but when they have their, their floods, which are quite frequent in Malaysia, they mm. removed the car traffic, they let the traffic tunnel hold all that storm water until the, storm, until the floods recede, then the water is let out. And they say, and I've read this in some newspaper articles, that within 48 hours they can have the parking uh, they can have the, the highway tunnel functioning again as a highway tunnel. So there are, there are examples um, of this kind of function. And, of course, in our exhibit we have numerous examples of underground parking that has been put in in the last 10, 15 years in major cities around the world as a way of protecting sensitive landscapes 
by putting cars and buses underground, including at the Vatican in Rome, uh, and Chartres Cathedral in France, um, and, of course, right here in Washington at the National Cathedral, where they recently put in underground parking. So it's really an, a current and modern solution to restore surface and open space above ground by putting cars and buses underground. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And um, in your display also, um, you showed how um, in cases of emergencies as well, as this could serve as a, a staging area as well. Well, this is interesting. In, in the past year and a quarter, we have met with over 100, 150 different entities, including the government agencies that do planning, the Office of Planning, D.C. Water, federal agencies, and security entities, because we were afraid at first that security services might find this to be a security risk. But in fact, we found that is not the case. It's because the proposal would be under the grass in the middle of the mall. So it's not under any building. It's not even near any building. So just be under the grass panel in the center. Um, mm-hmm. But more, we, what we heard from um, like Homeland Security and the Secret Service and the U.S. Park Police is that during certain events, such as a, an, the inauguration of the president, The underground facility would not be open to the public, but instead our security forces could use it as a staging area. And so they see this as actually advantageous to them and to their needs because right now they have to block off city streets and the tunnels at 9th and 12th Street in Washington, which is a, it's a dangerous thing because these are access in and out of the city in case of an emergency. So we were very pleased to see that we could build into the project actually a security component that en- enhances security on the mall. Wow. And um, this, this whole concept it just goes on and on and on. I was looking at the web page today, and there's an expansion as well of uh, broadening the mall and even into some areas of Virginia. Well, you know, the, the, the federal land on both sides of the Potomac River is owned by the federal government. And mm-hmm. so, again, um, right now, uh, you know, I think people experience the Potomac River as a, as a divider. It, it mm. separates. It separates Virginia from Washington. Just imagine, just imagine for a minute, what if we think of the Potomac River and all that public land on both sides as continuous? We could have mm-hmm. ferries going across. We could have um, monuments and public gathering spaces on both sides of the river and use the river itself, which is gorgeous. Um, use the river itself um, for um, public activities, for my, um, uh, waterfalls, for fountains, and so on. When I was a kid, um, we used to go to the Watergate steps behind the Lincoln Memorial and sit there, and the National Symphony Orchestra would be out on a barge in the Potomac River, and, you know, you'd sit on the steps and you'd listen to the National Symphony playing and the barge would go up and down the river. You know, I mean, it's those kinds of things um, that could show us to think, about, to think about the federal land and the Potomac River between it as a way to expand the mall and kind of reconnect both sides of the Potomac and use the Potomac more uh, usefully than we can right now, because right now there are very few ways to get access to the Potomac River on the federal land. District of Columbia has ways, and they're planning for more. Virginia has ways. But, you know, there are miles of federal land that, that, uh, that don't allow you to get to the water. And it's just really such a beautiful resource, the Potomac. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, there are a lot of nice areas along the Potomac, boathouses and places where you can rent, you know, small boats and things like that as well. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of areas that are just not seen by the general public because I think you just have to provide more access and, and then people will be able to discover. So, um, yeah, I, I like everything that I'm hearing. So tell us, I mean, this sounds very expensive. First of all, and and it sounds like it would need the support of so many different entities. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, uh, and let me just add one more thing. I mean, the Anacostia River is also a lot, has a lot of this federal land, so I shouldn't just talk about the Potomac because the Anacostia, um, and when I was a kid, I used to play softball on the Anacostia Flats, which is also landfill um, in Anacostia. Wonderful miles and miles of, of green space that could be incorporated into all of this. So on to your question of cost. There are two different projects here. The one is expanding the mall, uh, its boundaries, and including the rivers and both sides of the rivers even. Um, and the question is, who pays for that? Well, the way the mall has grown traditionally is that it doesn't grow all of a piece. You know, you throw billions of dollars at it and put up a bunch of buildings. Essentially what you do is you have a broad plan, and then when someone wants to build a museum – or if they want to create a great open space for an event like the, the Solar Decathlon, they go to Congress, they get authorization, legal authorization, and then they go through a planning process, and then they pay for it. Now, sometimes Congress pays, but increasingly in modern times, uh, Congress makes private uh, makes makes a project um, get private funds. For instance, the Martin Luther King Memorial was funded primarily by um, private funds. Um, so. Many of the memorials are. So if we have a broad plan, the next time someone comes up with a new museum idea and they get authorized by Congress, then they would choose a site. Now, right now, the way they choose sites is they kind of willy-nilly look for something that's close to the mall or close to the Capitol. But we would have, like, beautiful locations already identified on the waterfront and said, if you build it here you know, you will have a beautiful new destination and you could tie it with maybe a restaurant down on the waterfront and a dock and suddenly you would become a major destination. It would be, it would be development essentially by the interest that, that are coming up with the new idea and by public support because nothing gets built on the mall unless there's great public support. Mm -hmm. So that would be the slow and incremental growth of the mall. Uh, one way the mall did grow fast was in the 1930s, uh, in the middle of the Great Depression, when stimulus funds were, were, were <laughs> appropriated by Congress to get people working, and we had the Works Progress Administration and so on. And the mall at the time in the 1930s was still covered with trees. And what happened is suddenly there was money, and they pulled out the Macmillan plan from 1902, and they said, let's do it. So they cut down the trees, they put up the new rows of trees, they opened up the space and gave us what we have now. So if you don't have a plan but you've got money, it can be pandemonium. But if you have the money and you've got a grand plan, then you know how to steer that. Now, the other project, the, what we're calling the National Mall Underground, which is this underground parking and visitor center um, component, this we believe, and we base this on a lot of research and a lot of discussion with um, engineers and uh, traffic experts and um, public-private partnership experts, we believe this project, because of the revenue from car parking, from bus parking, and even from water fees, could be largely self-funding. That means private funds would be willing to provide the funding for construction and that the project, it would still be all public land, and the project would ultimately be a go back to the federal government, but it could be privately funded and amortized over 10, 20, as many years as it takes for the money to be recouped through these fees, at which time, when it was paid off, this underground facility would belong to the American people, to the U.S. government, because it's on government land. And all the money that comes in after that for these fees would go to maintenance of the mall. So we see it, you know, on the one hand, upfront pub private money could make the underground happen, which is why we believe it's doable and it's doable sooner than later. And secondly, ultimately the government benefits not only because we've got flood control and parking, but ultimately the government has a money-making venture when, when, uh, when the thing has self-paid -pay off. The plan as it stands now, um, tell us about the, the timeline that you are looking at to hopefully raise the funds and construction, if this is all approved. Right. Well, the, what, we've done, what we've done over the past year and a half is we've started with an idea, 
and we've developed the idea after we heard from the Park Service what they needed and after we heard from the Capitol what they would like to see and the Smithsonian what they would like. And we kind of created a program for this mall underground project that really solves a lot of people's needs. Um, Hmm. Now we have to get congressional authorization to move to the next step. Now the next step is not to build it, of course. The next step is to have an independent entity appraise, evaluate what we have done. And we've done engineering studies and traffic engineering studies. We've done all kinds of studies, but, of course, we are an entity that doesn't have authority over um, the public lands. So ultimately what we're asking Congress to do is for Congress to authorize creation of an independent commission of engineers, designers, um, uh, flood experts, and so on, to evaluate what we've done and to do their own independent evaluation of the pros and cons of this project, whether it's feasible, whether it's doable, whether it's fundable. And for that independent commission, taking what we've done, to then report back to Congress. Then Congress will have an independent assessment of whether what we propose is doable or not. And if Congress says do it, then we can move ahead to get the money and to, to, to develop the plan fully, with the whole the oversight that's required, and move ahead. Now, the sooner Congress can authorize this commission to do the evaluation, to do the feasibility study, the better. Um, we're hoping um, uh, this year and sooner than later to get the authorization to get that commission moving. If the commission can finish its work in another year or 18 months, um, then who knows? Uh, it could be two, three years um, and, and maybe construction could start. Um, we're, we're very hopeful. We think that we've really laid a lot of solid groundwork so that once Congress gets a report of the feasibility, which we're confident they would, that things could move relatively quickly because we keep moving all the time. We're not sitting and waiting. We keep taking the initiative. So that's what we're thinking. I mean, it would be wonderful if, you know, the, the, the one anniversary that's coming up that we keep in our mind is 2016. 2016 is the 100th anniversary of the creation of the National Park Service. Now, mm. the National Park Service has jurisdiction over the grass, over this part of the mall. I mean, we think it could be, you know, it, it could be a way to celebrate this open space um, at, with, uh, with maybe a grand celebration of the National Park Service at the same time that we are initiating this great place that brings people uh, to, to, to the mall. Uh, that's one idea. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're, we, we like to keep a shorter time frame, though I know people think that's a little on the optimistic side, but we like to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, people who get it done are often optimistic, so we understand that. And, um, you know, there are a lot of, major players who who seem to think that this is feasible, that are giving you support. Are there any that you'd like to highlight? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, from the beginning, you know, you have to, you have to cover your bases. You have to talk to people and, and find out what your political strategy as well as your design strategy is. And we went early on, very early on already to the National Park Service. And we sat with the uh, superintendent, the National Capital Regional Director, and we told them about it. And we wanted to, you know, to, to find out what they thought. And they said, well, this is all very interesting. So um, we're going to follow your progress. So from the beginning, um, we were greatly relieved and happy to see that the Park Service saw that we were actually solving some of their problems, in particular getting the buses off the street, off the mall. Um, and so that was, that was good. And, and the Park Service has said that, you know, they're following this and, you know, they're, they're – interested in in following the project. Now, of course, we also needed to go to this D.C.'s Office of Planning. Will the offices that are trying to get cars out of the city um, object? And, in fact, um, they may not like the car element so much, but they love the tour bus component. So, again, Mm -hmm. you have to, you know, there's some trade-offs everyone can see, but since no one else is proposing tour bus parking and we're proposing tour bus parking for 200 or more tour buses, this looks like a feasible um, uh, answer to their, their problem. Of course, Congress is crucial, and we've been up on Capitol Hill to over 100 offices 
meeting with members of Congress and with uh, staff in Congress to be sure that both the members and the committees that have oversight over them all understand that what we're trying to do, how we're trying to solve problems. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton of the District of Columbia is very supportive. Um, uh, Congressman Jim Moran of Virginia, very supportive. Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. And I, I, like, I like the fact that Washington, Maryland, and Virginia um, understand and are supporting because, after all, Washington, D.C. was carved out of land that was given by Virginia and Maryland. Um, and, of course, most, a, a huge number of the visitors to the mall, the daily visitors of the mall, are families from uh, the, the nearby region as well as other states nearby. So um, the support also, I mean, we've been, we've been very, very happy that the, the Washington Post um, has been a strong supporter of um, the coalition's visionary thinking. Already back in 2005, uh, uh, Fred Hyatt of the Post editorialized and say, let them all grow, um, pushing the notion that we can expand them all if we think big. And just recently, well, in March of last year, we, we got a wonderful editorial from the Washington Post saying, yes, let's study this underground mall project. It, it, it deserves more study. Everyone benefits. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's what we're trying to do here. Let's try, instead of doing kind of piecemeal jurisdiction planning, let's try to find a way that all of us benefit. Then we can work together on something for a change, and really all of us can benefit. So, um, so, so far so good. We haven't found anyone against it, and we found most people are at first shocked and then actually quite thrilled and interested. Even some agencies that start by saying, oh, it can't be done, or are you really, do you really think that's a good idea? When I see them three, four, five months later, they've changed because they've had time to think about it. So we realize visionary ideas can be scary. They can seem outlandish. But I think people are also seeing that if we can pull it off and it looks increasingly like it's feasible to us, then, you know, it's time, to, it's time to get behind it. The problem in Washington, of course, is government agencies can't really speak up. They're not, they can't lobby. They can't advocate. And so it's really up to the public. And, and that's why we're out there trying to raise the public awareness. We're working on updating our website so that it's um, clearer what people can do, which is essentially contact Congress and say, we want the National Mall Underground. We want it to be studied. We want this... We want the public to have the food, the restrooms, the, the amenities. And, and I think we want the city, the members of the, you know, the, the, the local community, to look at this and say, and this to me as a Washingtonian uh, who grew up here and remembers the mall, um, good and bad, the mall is like, it, I mean, I, it's, I hate to say it, it's like a dead space in the middle of the city. Um, you've got the downtown, which has really been revitalized in, in recent decades. Now you've got the city revitalizing the whole southwest waterfront, down to the water, down mm -hmm. to the channel. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're looking at it's going to be a tremendous growth and, and wonderful connections to the water. I mean, it's, it's something that cities across the country are doing. Washington is now going to have a lot of water amenities. But in between downtown and the southwest waterfront, are these 600 acres that go dead at night and that are not and don't have that much activity and increasingly less activity as the park service starts to restrict things like the book festival and the folklife festival so if we have this underground parking that means that 24 hours a day people can be there 24 hours a day they can find food and restrooms, they don't have to move their car every two hours when the parking meter runs out. They don't have to move their car off Independence and Constitution Avenue when rush hour kicks in. I mean, <laughs> there's so many ways that the mall gets vacated by people because not only the museum shut down, but you can't park. So we see this as a way to really kind of knit back together the city, the northern, the, you know, the downtown and the southwest, and really contribute to the vitality of Washington, D.C.'s urban life. Wow. I'm excited. 
<laughs> good, good. That's what we and, want. <laughs> you know, honestly, at first I was one of those naysayers, and I asked a lot of questions as well. Is how can you do this? How does that work? Really, do you think this can happen? And um, mostly after I got the gist of what you guys were proposing, it seemed so exciting for that to actually happen and for something new to happen on the National Mall. It, it is just like you said. It's a dead space where things have not changed for quite some time. And where its major attraction that's always been there as a fixture is the merry-go-round. But besides that and the museums that surround the perimeter, there's really nothing there that's going on until the 4th of July. Well, that, well. I mean, that is the problem. But imagine if you have parking at night. Yes. At night, you can have activities in the evening, especially in the summertime. Mm-hmm. But see, what happens is, and I know this because I now live out in the suburbs, that if I come downtown and I go to the mall um, in my car and with family, uh, I have to leave by 4 o'clock because that's when rush hour restrictions kick in. And so I don't have dinner in town, and I don't stay for any evening activities. But if I could stay put... Then you could have um, evening activities. You could have concerts. You could have theater on the mall. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if you remember this, but I certainly do. Um, my first Shakespeare, my first seeing Shakespeare was on the mall at the Sylvan Theater at the foot of the Washington Monument. Back in the mm-hmm. 1960s, there was free Shakespeare. And we used to go down there and, and you know, uh, uh, as, as confounding as it was to me to listen to, to Shakespeare, it was fabulous. We could have more activities because people would be able to bring their families and so on. So, again, it's doable. Go down right now on the mall, and you will see um, along Constitution Avenue a great big hole being built for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, it's a, it's a, going to be a grand building right there next to the Washington Monument, and uh, all it takes is the will of someone to come up with the idea um, the approval of Congress, and then the money and will to make it happen. And mm-hmm. they're doing a gigantic project. And our project would be a little larger, but, um, again, it, it can be done. Absolutely. Wow. Well, that's great. You know, I want to let everybody know, too, um, give your website again, but tell them also where your um, headquarters is, where people can actually come and, you know, Get a, a closer view of what you guys are proposing as well as um, have someone explain um, how this all comes together. Yeah. Well, our website is uh, savethemall.org, www.savethemall.org. Um, we're working on a separate web- website for the nationalmallunderground.org, uh, mm. but it's not quite up yet, but that will be uh, coming soon. Um, uh, our office uh, at exhibition is at 1000 Connecticut Avenue uh, Northwest. That's right at Connecticut Avenue and K Street. And in fact, it's not really our office, but it's our exhibition, and it's worth coming in to see. Uh, It tells the whole story of the needs for this facility, this underground facility, the precedence, that is examples in Europe and America of underground parking garages, as well as flooded uh, garages. And then it shows how we put all of those pieces together into option uh, a and option B. We now prefer prefer, prefer option B, um, and and then we have this wonderful video, a 3D video that shows where it is and how it will function when the rains come and when the cars come and when the floods come, uh, and that is also on our website. You can see, but we have it up, um, at at the uh, exhibit space, um, and uh, and then we have on on another wall all these blown up pictures of the floods of Washington. Most people don't realize how drastic the flooding problem has been in the past and how drastic it looks for the future. Washington has two different kinds of floods. One is from the Potomac River, and the other one is from these storm waters, just just heavy rains like we had in 2006. So we've got two different problems that need to be solved, and right now the Army Corps is building a levee at 17th Street and Constitution Avenue to stop Potomac River, but it won't solve the other problem that our National Mall Underground will. Now, as for our offices otherwise, um, we are an all-volunteer. <laughs> We're an all-volunteer nonprofit, um, and essentially we have worked out of some of our board members' offices here and there, but by and large we are, um, we are virtual. We work out of home offices, 
Um, but right now, our focal point is the exhibition. And so we have um, an intern who's working there and has materials and can talk about the project. And also, um, Arthur Cotton Moore and I are happy to give personal um, tours of the exhibition where I can talk about the whole history of the project and Arthur Cotton Moore can talk about the architectural development of the project. So if people are interested, they can go to savethemall.org and hit contact us and you'll get my email, jfeldman at savethemall.org. And we'd be happy to set up a personal tour um, for you and your colleagues and your friends because the key here is we're reaching out to the public it's going to be the public that's going to make this happen um, by convincing Congress that this is in the public interest. It's our broad national interest that we're trying to serve. And I think people will really love it once it's in place. And, and tell us just a little bit about um, Arthur Cotton Moore as well, because you just mentioned him and how yeah. he fits into this. Arthur Cotton Moore um, is a native Washingtonian, as am I, and as is uh, Albert Small also, the, <laughs> the three of us. Are the, um, uh, Arthur Cotton Moore um, is, an, is an architect, a renowned architect in Washington, um, and he, he's renowned for several projects, including he did the restoration of the Library of Congress, um, mm. one of the most fantastic buildings in Washington, D.C., with the interior, beautiful stone carvings, mosaics, wall paintings, and so on. And he um, oversaw and did that uh, restoration. He also did the restoration of the old post office building back in the 1970s. Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. he is a historic preservation architect, as well as being an architect in his own right. He did design the Washington Harbor um, eclectic architecture program right down there wow. in Georgetown. It's a combination of kind of classicism and, and modernism, a very kind of uh, exuberant building um, right there on the waterfront. So uh, he's done numerous projects, but he also is deeply knowledgeable of mm -hmm. the history of Washington planning. He, he, he has researched the L'Enfant Plan and the Macmillan Plan. He is very much an advocate for adhering to those visions because it's those visions that have given us the beauty of Washington we know. And so he and I work closely on that because I'm an art historian and I've done a lot of research myself on Washington planning and architecture. Um, and so he brings to this project not just the capacity to design um, uh, the, the, the project, but to think about how to design it so that we protect the mall's historic design and beauty and open space, while at the same time uh, creating something brand new and very exciting and futuristic, really. Wow. <laughs> that, that is amazing. And did you want to mention a little bit about Arthur Small as well? Albert Small. Albert oh, Small Albert is a remarkable Small, I'm sorry. Man. Yeah, <laughs> Albert Small, he proudly proclaims he's 88 years old. He is a native Washingtonian. Um, Albert Small um, is a, uh, a, a businessman, a, a developer, and he's been developing in Washington for decades and decades. Um, but he also is a major philanthropist. He sits on the board of the Kennedy Center and the Library of Congress and the National Archives because he deeply believes in the importance of educating ourselves and the American um, people uh, about our great history, about our culture, and so on. Um, he has been in the news recently because he, over the past oh, many decades, has collected historic views and plans and, and documents relating to Washington history. And he donated his entire collection of historic maps and views of Washington to the George Washington University. And they're now in the process of building a museum, which is going to open, I think, later this year or next year, to display this great historic collection. He also donated a copy of the Declaration of Independence to University of Virginia and paid for the building, the museum, that holds it. So that's the kind of thing he does. He has collected um, uh, uh, American uh, documents and history, and now he's been donating them back to the community in the belief that our culture um, needs to be pr um, both protected but also made available to the public. 
And he sees the National Mall Underground not as a parking garage per se, but as giving the American people access to the wonderful collections of the Smithsonian, of the National Archives, of the National Gallery, and, and to, to events like the National Book Festival and the Folklife Festival. So for him, this is all of a piece with his philanthropic attempt to make sure that future generations have access to the great culture of America. That's and he's amazing. a great guy, and he's a great <laughs> guy. On top of it, he's just a, a he's just a, a lovely man. Um, and he and Arthur and I work great together. I mean, we all just care so much that uh, you know we just we we find ourselves you know with a very common feeling that what we're doing is important, and we believe that the American people, when they find out about it, and when yeah. they have found out about it, see it as important and also see it as something that only we as the public can do because government agencies can't think this way and can't implement projects on this scale. So, you know, the, the sooner Congress says, yes, do it, take the initiative, run with it, uh, the sooner we're ready to make it happen. We want to see it happen in our lifetime, and, and Albert does very much. He wants, he wants to see it happen in his lifetime. And I want to see it happen in my lifetime as well. And, you know, I'm very excited. Um, please let me know if there's anything that we can do, if you need any more airtime or support, uh, if there are events, uh, please let us know um, how we can contribute as well. And, um, you know, just keep people aware because it is very important. This is, to me, I can't think of it any other way but an historic initiative. I mean, this could change our mall and Bring it to that next level, as you say, for the um, the next century. So this is just an amazing um, concept and idea. And to hear people who are a part of that and to speak to them directly, I think it's just phenomenal. I'm I'm very excited. Seriously. Well, you make me just... feel <laughs> you make me feel very important. But can yeah. I can I throw in one more one more? Thing? Sure, sure. Um, um, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Washington Post published a letter, uh, uh, an article, and other other local newspapers and 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 blogs and digital uh, media picked up the story that the National Book Festival, which is a great event that happens once a year for one or two days, where all these authors of books come to the National Mall and under tents they, they read and they talk about writing their, the books and they, and they recite poetry. And it's just a fabulous gathering, a very family-friendly activity on the Mall. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the newspapers reported that the National Park Service, now that it has restored the grass um, to the Mall, is going to restrict public use of the open space and the book festival mm. will no longer be on the Mall. Well, the coalition, of course, we are all about public use of the mall. That's our key theme. Um, so I wrote an op-ed, and it, the Washington Post published it in the uh, Sunday um, paper from January 19th. Um, and it, essentially we said, who decides what the mall is for? And essentially it's not going to be, uh, the mall is not just about the grass. We understand the need to protect the grass, but the mall is really about creating a space where American culture, where American history, where First Amendment rights can be celebrated. And so the Washington Post wrote my op-ed, and I've been hearing from people, and this is an, um, a, a, an important theme uh, that's going to be in our updated website. That is, we need to protect the mall as our public open space, a place to, for the American public to demonstrate what it means to live in an open and free society. So that wow. theme is something we need people to, to mm -hmm. speak up about. We need to yeah. develop um, a congressional awareness that the mall not only needs to expand and to expand underground, but that we need to make sure that the above-ground beautiful space is made specifically to support public use, not to put grass first people come first. And so that's, you know, this is a theme, and I'm telling, you know, in the future and maybe in coming weeks and months, we are going to have um, specific things to ask the public to do, and I'd be very happy to come back on and, and, and uh, tell people what we think they can best do. Right now, the best thing they can do is con uh, uh, contact Congress and say, you know, these ideas sound really good, and we think Congress should authorize these groups to move ahead with at least the next level of study. Yes, 
Wow. Well, Dr. Judy Scott Feldman, thank you very much. I have enjoyed you immensely, as much as I did and more the day that we met. And I'm just really excited, thankful for your cause and, you know, bringing attention to this, um, you know, this event that should take place that could change our our city for the better. Um, and, you know, I can't really think of a more noble cause to do something that would impact um, an untold number of people, not only here in Washington, D.C. and in America, but across the globe who come to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, to enjoy the history and the wonderment and the beauty of Washington, D.C. Very well said. Very well said. But it does. It feels good. It feels good to be working on something where we can really make a difference. And I think that's why we invite people to join us to help us make a difference because we believe that this this is a very exciting project and it serves so many people. Um, and it really will make the city a more beautiful, useful, lovely, connected, unified space. We think. Oh, thank you very much. We're out of time, and okay. we will talk again soon, hopefully before the week is out. I, I would love to discuss some more with you. Okay, well, thank you very much again. Thank you. And um, we hope to uh, great things, you know, and I hope this initiative will be able to gain uh, the steam it needs to be able to go through and um, make this big change. Okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation to be on the show. Thank you for coming. Well, special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. Before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.